0: Lovely to see you all here this morning and uh, welcome to our visitors who once again um, are probably being plunged into the middle of a, of a series where we talk um, about um, sometimes some, some difficult things conceptually, sometimes they're difficult issues. Issues is the thing that we're talking about at the moment, questions of ethics and issues. And so part of what I want to do today before we dive into um, some of those issues in depth is again to sort of prepare the ground think about what it is that we're actually doing something like christian ethics and should we even be worried about christian ethics shouldn't we just be talking about how wonderful it is that we have been saved that we've been forgiven of our sins and uh, perhaps we just continue on that cycle merry-go-round of talking uh, about that over and over and over again or Maybe we might want to think about what the great salvation that we have received and the way that this uh, interacts with the life that we have, the way that um, not just forgiveness of sins but newness of life is important to us. As you just saw there in Ephesians, the fundamental thing that Paul starts off with is to walk worthy of the calling you have received, not just to receive that calling into fellowship with God and into the community of the church and to be satisfied with that, but rather to walk to live a Christian life together that actually reflects the truth of the gospel, reflects the character of the God that we serve, reflects the lordship of Christ. Walk worthy of the calling that you have received. Yes, it is possible, even for Protestants, to say, yes, I do want to pursue a life that is worthy of what God has um, set forward for me. We spend a lot of time often talking about how unworthy we are in coming to god and that is uh, absolutely uh, correct uh, none of us can sort of uh, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps as it were to enter into relation with god but the good news of the gospel is that god does reach out to us through our lord jesus christ and through his death and resurrection provides us a relationship with god and participation in the kind of life that he has always desired for human beings most of the Bible in fact is about God's mighty acts toward that end and then laying out those not just expectations like rules but really what does it mean to live a human life what does it mean to live in God's image what does it mean to actually live um, according to his kingdom come into this world so that's kind of the the fundamental uh, question Next thing you might have picked up there from Ephesians 2 and it's talking about the shape of Christian community and the different gifts that are given is that it moves on to talk about this idea of putting on the new man, the uh, King James is to say. um, Better probably thought of in terms of the new humanity that together, male and female, we are to put on this new form of life and put off what has gone before. There really is a difference in coming into Christian life and if we don't sense that or experience it we should probably find out more about why that is um, the case so when we're thinking about over the next um few weeks um these different issues there's a few different things that i want us to sort of bear in mind first of all a reminder from last week so put your seatbelt on i'm not going to repeat it all thankfully somebody will be saying but you might remember oh goodness that diagram from last time which was basically to say that when we're looking at scripture because we want to draw upon the resources of scripture to understand what it is that God wants us to do, how he wants us to live, what is the nature of um, what he has provided for us in terms of both salvation, the giving of the spirit and all those different things. In engaging with scripture, we realise problems. Sometimes when we're together as Christians, heck, not everybody is agreeing with each other well, that's because only one person is right and all the rest are wrong. Or maybe it's, there's, it's a bit more complicated than what we think. It's not to say that sometimes there are, like so one person has the right interpretation and everyone else is wrong. Probably better to think, yeah, sometimes we can do better and some interpretations of scripture are better than others. But we just have to be comfortable with the reality that people disagree I and mean, we need to work out how to disagree well, but even more importantly, how to press in and understand um, Scripture even more. And one of the things that we talked about, just to simplify it a little bit, is just to think about how we look at smaller parts of Scripture in relation to bigger parts, how Paul might say something in this letter here, and think about what it means in terms of the whole letter. What does it mean in terms of everything that Paul wrote? What does that mean in relation to everything else in the New Testament? How does this relate across? story of the bible so we need to be sort of thinking like that not to always go for the kind of easy hot take from scripture like um i read this 30 seconds ago and now here's my opinion but to really develop the virtue of patience in interpreting scripture on our own and together okay so we'll move on past that now it's and we just talked a little bit about I'm not going to go through that again, but just a little bit about how there are different aspects to Scripture, how we think about it as a revelation, as we think about it as God's inspired words, we think about it as an authoritative rule or canon for us, and also how we think about it as a witnessing tradition. Um, when you read the Psalms, for instance, you don't just automatically go, God is revealing to me in the Psalms. These are, in fact, part of our response to God's revelation, are they not? They're singing praise and thanks, sometimes lament, sorrow, occasionally a little bit angry, back towards God in terms of what God has done or seemingly not done. So what we find in scripture is a lot of different sort of genres in that and it's important for us when we're thinking about ethics in particular and different issues that arise that we just don't go looking for lots of different verses and sort of bundle them all together as a list, list of... Um, uh, pre, uh, propositions that are all sort of saying the same kind of thing. Okay, so the controversial one I briefly mentioned last time was that when we think about the Psalms and David thinking about how, as a, in his mother's womb, how he was knit together, and so forth, you don't want to press that poetic imagination too far and say God is revealing here that He gets every individual baby and He's and He's knitting it all together. You kind of want to just say, just pull back a little bit and say, all right, what's actually going on here in this text? What's it trying to do? What's it trying to achieve? Not turn everything into an assertion um, or a proof text. All right, so today, think about Christian ethics. Sometimes we talk about Christian social ethics because what we think about is both what does it mean to live um, Christianly in our community, but we also think, yeah, the way of life that God presents to us is also part of the offering that we have to the wider world. Not in a coercive way, but by way of example and by way of connecting it with gospel um, proclamation. A lot of what we see in the public square now from Christians, is angry Christians, telling people how they should live and when they haven't actually necessarily got it together, uh, in their own community. It's not so we don't have anything to say to the wider world, but we want to uh, make sure that we start with ourselves. Okay, so the first thing is that ethics isn't just a kind of a, a hobby for those interested in issues, um, and it isn't something that we should think about apart from Christian doctrine or Christian theology. Sometimes talk about doctrine over here and ethics over there. And that's a false split because actually in the New Testament as we see, in the Old Testament as we see, what we teach, how we live, all these things are intermeshed. Okay, They shouldn't be separated. So sometimes the end can be unhelpful because some end includes it's an end that makes them two different things. So we don't want that. So moral life is integral to a, to a Christian faith. And ethics as a reflection on moral life is part of our vocation as Christians. It's an integral part of theology, which is thinking about our faith. As anyone who doesn't want to do theology, they're really saying, I don't want to think about my faith. Um, and we can do it to whatever capacity that we're um, compelled or feel that we um, want to engage in it, but you want to be thinking about your faith because you want to be able to give an answer to others, as I've said before. When you ask questions about your faith... And you think, you know, if I said, put your hands up, who's been a Christian more than 10 years? I reckon there'd be a, quite a large number of people here who would say that. So I'd always put the challenge 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, whatever it is, press in, put in the effort, live your life as a disciple that believes that this actually means something, the things that we sing about and talk about in church. So ethics is part of our moral life. We are, as one person put it, by tradition and vocation, a community of moral discourse or discussion and debate. It's part of who we are. If you think about mission, okay, you think about how important this is involved in development or social action as well as evangelism, all of these things together are connected with Christian ethics and that as well. Okay, and now when I say Christian ethics, it's not just a matter of saying it's the word justice a lot or compassion or whatever, but really having a deep integrated faith that actually says, what does it mean to follow Jesus in his um, ministry where he calls us to go and do the same things that he did in terms of healing, care, compassion, concern for the poor, and so forth as well. And having our an understanding of justice being shaped by Jesus himself. And we seek practices. Are very abstract sounding Pre Practices that embody the good, the good life, the good creation. All of those different things that um, that God calls us to celebrate and embody. We want to also have practices, ways that we live our life together, that actually show what a good life looks like. We talk about the goodness of creation. What does it mean to live as a human being in the goodness of creation? We talk about having a good society. Sometimes, well, how does the Christian community model something about being? a good society Um, we talked in Bible study once about um, some things that came up about forgiveness and you would think that Christians would be like the thought leaders in terms of forgiveness but actually often we do forgiveness really badly we haven't thought it through well and sometimes we think forgiveness like a lot of other people is letting people off the hook so they can damage me again or it's basically saying okay um, I forgive you do I have to forget what they did altogether and just be a sucker again? We don't actually think through sometimes what forgiveness actually, actually means. And so we need to seek the practice of forgiveness with understanding. What does it look like? How does it relate not just to not condemning somebody, but how does it lead to questions of reconciliation? Okay? moving the next step after forgiveness to actually be in relationship with someone. But what does that mean in terms of trust with someone? It doesn't just mean, ah, oh, I'll just forget everything that you did and I'm um, ready to be um, a sucker, as I said. It means, what does that mean to in reconciliation to build relationships um, of trust? And then in other issues, what does it mean in terms of restoration that might be involved in those sorts of things? So there's a whole lot of questions where we have to think about our faith not just say forgiveness, um, not just say justice, but really say, OK, I want to understand what this is all about. I often think that sometimes our kids, when we don't take it seriously, wonder as well whether we whether it is serious, whether it actually matters. If we don't spend the time actually engaging in both thinking and practice with our faith, should our kids take it seriously either? Well, that's a bit hard, is not it? It's true, though. Um, And we seek an ethos and a character in our community life that embodies and commends the aims of the gospel, okay? The big word, of course, that we're afraid of hearing from anyone is hypocrites. We need to seek to live a life that actually says, yes, the gospel is meaningful, it makes a difference in life, Um, and here's what it looks like, okay? Now, the gospel isn't our actions, but our actions should actually be integrated with the gospel because it's supposed to issue forth in newness of life. Okay. But here's some issues that we have to face. So we're talking next two weeks, we're going to be looking at the issue of um, uh, women in ministry and particularly uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you are familiar with, the, with that text. What we want to do is actually model some of the things that we've been talking about last week, or last time, and, and this time as well, knowing that there is disagreement. Okay. So here's a few different things that I'll just will mention before the big one. The first thing is sometimes if we talk about actually how we will think together and also share it more widely is that Christian ethics is tied up with Christian history and Christian history, particularly when we think about things like Christendom, the dominance of a kind of Christian culture in the West, there's a lot of problems in that where sometimes there is actually inconsistency, we would say, with what a Christian life should look like. So different, uh, you know, we think about that in the history of our own country. People often say that colonialism so forth, but we've got to bring the gospel with it, so it's all Okay. There is a moral and ethical issue with colonialism and um, sometimes in view of that history it's hard for some people to separate out the teaching of Jesus, the achievement of Jesus that is shown to us in the gospel versus what his so-called followers uh, have done. And then secondly, pluralistic society, we're in a whole mishmash of different ideas around some of which we pick up and agree with and some that we don't but In our uh, our time basically the idea is that um, we all have basically our own opinions, our own thoughts. It's not necessarily fully a bad thing but on the other hand it also has this sense where it's not just a fact that we disagree but we feel like we should be able to disagree and no matter what I can have my own particular thoughts. and uh, Don't interrupt me with arguments or facts or anything like that. And then we're also, as part of that, a society that's in transition, that we are post-Christendom, we are post-modern to some degree. Some people think maybe post-secular, so I' t- talking about being post-colonial. All of those post-words basically say that we're in a, com- a community and a society that is shifting and changing. So we have to sort of be aware of, uh, of that as well. So I'll just skip through that, I think. The big one, though, is is this one, is the question that we're looking at, is that the hermeneutics, that is the art of interpretation and the fact of Christian disagreement about different things. So what we want to do over the next couple of weeks, looking at the issue of uh, women in ministry, is to think not just about here's a position that I'm going to present to you, but rather what's the form of interpretation and reasoning that takes place? And if someone disagrees, what, what might be the thing that they're emphasising over another thing? Okay? And to do so charitably. Not just to say, here's our position, that's it. Um, but rather to say, okay, I want to understand why some people think um, differently. So basically, I'm going to let the kid out of the bag here and basically say that uh, our church is one that supports women teaching. But you have to deal with one text, which on the face of it, in English, um, looks problematic. So we'll talk about that. But Christians disagree because of the different ways that they int- made interpretive moves through that. Okay. And then when we're thinking about issues, and particularly in Christian ethics, there's rarely in the complexity of our lives a very simple line from reading a verse to knowing what an action is is sometimes it's reasonably clear. We'll say, don't commit adultery. Yep, okay, clear. Um, What about issues of divorce and so forth? How does that work? That gets a bit more complicated. Um, So there's lots of different um, tangles that you might um, come up with as well, but you have to make judgments. I know people sometimes will say, I just want to hear what the Bible says. And then they'll say, and this is what the Bible says. And they might be right, but actually a lot of the time someone who's very quickly makes that statement could actually be very wrong. Because we need patience. We want to read scripture. We want to understand it. And we have those other issues, as we said uh, last time before, thinking about in terms of our tradition, thinking about the different parts of scripture and how they work together, um, thinking about taking uh, the reality of people's experiences... Uh, authentically thinking about reason and science and actually having a logical understanding of what we're doing but of course these are all in terms of a priority scripture is our authority that Jesus through the spirit and scripture rules us Um, the tradition is at its best a way of actually having the history of understanding scripture and at its worst sometimes deviates us off from scripture so we have to come to terms with that so there's a number of different issues um, going on there. All right. So in doing Christian ethics, this is actually probably the, the big one that I want to say today in terms of thinking about what, what's actually happening when we're reading scripture and how does that uh, affect um, our minds and our actions. And I've changed the, the actual term here is the idea of, <coughs> and only philosophers talk like this, um, the social imaginary what the what on earth is that Okay. so the idea of the social imaginary actually no, I'll just spell them out first I have written them all out here first is converting a social imaginary the second one is be cultivating a Christian community the third one championing the common good and the last one is contesting injustice and challenging the status quo because a new world is on the way in the resurrection of Jesus and the giving of the Spirit. So the status quo, the way things are, is not, uh, is not good enough anymore. All right. So here we are. Social imaginaries is the idea, the images and stories that are shared by a large group of people providing a common understanding that makes possible common practices, the way we live and work together, and gives a sense of the legitimacy and perhaps the seeming necessity of this particular order of things. Okay. So, what's happening there? So, basically, not only are we, um, uh, do we have opinions and so forth that we think we freely choose, there is a sense in which we share together common ideas about what society is about, is about what humanity is about, um, what a good society looks like, um, what, uh, basically, what are the sort of positions that we should sort of come up with uh, in our lives in terms of our actions, um, the dominance of particular ideas... And um, we talked about Philippians over the last few weeks, and I want to give an example, probably from from that, about how it is actually our imagination that is the most contested ground in our lives. Not just ideas, but the imagination. So you remember when we talked about Philippians, talking about where the images were of the emperor, son of God, Lord, Saviour, the imperial power, the proper gods and goddesses, all their images and so forth, and all signs of that reality were found all through their lives. If you went to the gymnasium, you would find, ah, oh, the, the different statues of the gods and, and inscriptions and so forth that would just remind you um, of who's in charge. Okay? Even little items for private use might be pottery and things like that that we find in archaeology. We find, oh you know, inscriptions of the, the emperor and so forth. And with things that colonise, you might say, your imagination, there is a time when you see them and it's a time when you no longer see them but you have internalized it you don't need to be told that uh, caesar augustus is the emperor and that he's in control of your life and that he's the lord and son of god you just come to accept that and in a sense you just see it all around you and as i say that's the order of things that's how things actually work it's the way they should be it's normal so we're going to be talking about how do we think about uh, gender roles and so forth. We're going to be talking about sex and sexuality. There's a sense in which our culture has undergone a shift about what is... This is the norm, and that's deviant. And now in our time, this is the norm, and that's deviant. And maybe Christians find themselves, depending on your view on such things, find themselves, I was in over here and, I, and, um, and now I'm out, or... Whatever. Anyway, there's a shift and there's a sense in which we find there is a normality that we um, uh, find ourselves coming up against. And part of renewing our minds is actually to change our imagination, to actually change the way that we see and perceive the world. Not just, again, arguing over a couple of texts, but saying what's, what's happening at the deeper level? So, I mean, if we could stop for a moment and ask yourselves just for a couple of minutes, the images and regimes of other times seem obvious. You look at them and go, ooh, weird, odd. Um, Obviously, um, you know, not the way things are. But if you ask about what is the the imagined community, what what does Australia mean? What does it mean to be part of Western Australia? What does it mean to be a member of Margaret River? And what does it mean to be part of a global economy? What does it mean to be um, part of something which just seems normal? What would be some of the things, do you think, that um, are deep in your sense of being about what is normal and necessary? Another example might be thinking about the centrality of Jesus' approach to those who are his enemies. And his own approach is one that challenges us and let's be honest, we find frightening when we think about what it means to say that the sons of God and sin on the mount, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called the sons of God. Love your enemies. Do good to those who um, curse you. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who persecute you. And in so doing, be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. Yeah, but... We immediately think, but surely, you know, sometimes we need to lash out and retaliate or whatever and overcome our enemies. Okay, good that um, you're now engaged with Jesus. But do we engage in Jesus in a way that sidelines him in favour of the social imaginary, military force, being strong? Maybe there's more going on there, more of a challenge than what we imagine. Maybe Jesus isn't just good advice for the moment. Sometimes, maybe Jesus is bringing in a whole new world and with it, a change in our imagination of what it means to live in the world. What does it mean to face persecution and violence in the way of the cross? Okay, that sounds scary. But that's what the New Testament starts to present us with, a different way of life modelled on both the achievement and example of Jesus. Jesus' own dying on the cross is presented all through the New Testament as the one place for men to imitate Jesus. Take up your cross and follow after him. Deny yourself. Or in 1 Peter 2, the same thing in the face of persecution. So, um, yeah, a a different social imagination that's taking place. I said there as well, part of what we need to do is think about what it means to cultivate Christian community. It's not like we ignore what happens outside of these walls or outside of our gathering together, but we need to think about what is the shape of the life that we are actually called to, to walk worthy of the calling that we have received, one that we invite others to, but actually that we ourselves are called to and supposed to live together in. Any time that we talk about our gathering as a community needs to have discipleship, the following and worship of Jesus at its centre. We can have lots of different pragmatic decisions. If that's not the question we're asking first, we are making a serious mistake. We always have to be asking first question, how is what we do or what we have or what we, how we live together shaped by our mission, by our discipleship, by our service of Jesus? Christian community is at the centre of our lives. You can't really be saying, oh, I'm a Christian, i go off doing my own thing. You're an anomaly if you're actually not part of Christian community. That's probably a nice little term to be coined there, an anomalous Christians. Okay. We talked about this um, a couple of months ago. What does it mean to be a Christian community? And uh, this quote from, uh, quoted in Colbert, what would it mean if actually the way that we gather together our practices and the way that we do things looked not just like another non-profit organisation registered, but rather the Brotherly, this is written in the 1940s, Fellowship of Jesus Christ. Brotherly and Sicily, we'll say then. Okay, we talked about a few weeks back the different practices that we have. I'm not going to stop with that now though. But we need to ask, how are decisions made in our community and how do they differ from the way that they're handled in other communities? Power, how is it handled, wielded or distributed in the community? Do the least of these and socially marginalised have an equal say in our community to reflect what we're called to be? Are women made in the image of God and heirs to the salvation life of Christ, recognised and empowered and given the opportunity to participate as befits this status in Christ? It's an important question. It's one that we'll have hanging over our heads when we look over the next two weeks. And how do we handle disagreement and difference? Okay, we think about the uh, two leaders in the church who were women who had a disagreement of some kind that was serious and affecting uh, what was happening in the church. Um, It was a serious either leadership disagreement or a theological disagreement or something and it was important for them to actually work together with the community to help them to actually resolve what was going on. We can't just be the sort of people that are like, "Mm, I don't like what someone said and I'm not coming back for two weeks or or more or um, refuse to talk to a person they disagree with or refuse to actually work it out, include others, work towards... Forgiveness and reconciliation. When it comes down to these sorts of problems, it really shows whether we've really grasped what it means to be part of the body of Christ, to be part of a new humanity. A couple of things that we uh, add to this too, which I think are important, is that we seek the peace of the city, as uh, Jeremiah uh, put it, that we actually seek to champion the common good and the well-being of this community but also the wider community as well but how can we champion that wider community's common good if we can't do that ourselves here as well find ways to actually seek the benefits of each other you might say again in terms of Philippians prefer one another seek the interests of one another and not your own whoops I'm going the wrong way okay um, the Christian community exists yes as an end itself in terms of glorifying God and fellowship together it also exists for the life of the world I won't talk about Romans yet Okay. Um, okay. I'm going to leave that there for the moment that's about scripture and I think we've kind of covered most of that except to say this Dramatic pause. This is partly in terms of what we often think about in terms of ethics, which is like, what's a principle or rule that I have to obey? Or how can I make everything turn out well? And both of those, in a sense, are kind of misguided. Um, and they kind of show if we approach scripture like that, we actually undermine how scripture can actually help us live our Christian life. If we're just going to go through scripture and look for a rule pertinent to our own situation, as I says, sometimes um, you'll be lucky. You'll get one. Other times you'll luck out. There won't be something directly addressing the issue that you want. Does that mean that scripture does not speak to the issues which we want to find out about? That doesn't mean that because it does speak to us but it speaks to us in that broader way in terms of imagination. When we just always want to find a rule this again, uh, harsh words for the next two months. Um, it's a sign of our lack of understanding of what scripture is about. Maybe even a sense of immature grasp of scripture. Because scripture isn't just a bunch of rules. For the most part, it's stories and it's pictures of metaphors and things like that telling us the truth about who God is and how to live but oft, sometimes it's direct and he, here's a statement and here's a rule or a principle of some kind. But a lot of the time it's setting the stage for you to actually think about something. It just doesn't always tell you what to follow like a child. Instead, as we've looked at over many months, scripture is basically trying to turn us into mature people in Christ who can make wise judgments, who can make judgments that are conform. To our purpose in discipleship is just to actually, it's there to shape us to actually be the people God calls us to be. Mature sons and daughters of God. Okay? And so we need to engage with them, we need to think it through, we need to talk with each other about it, we need to share, and sometimes, yes, even argue and debate about certain things um, in the most generous and loving way. But it's part of what scripture does augustine um, the great saint augustine said scripture is hard and of course um, his view is that well god has given it to us like that for a purpose for us to struggle with it for us to actually grapple with it and to be shaped in that struggle there is a time to be led like a small child you might say to desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby Um, and then a lot of times scripture will tell us okay, time to grow up time not just to keep going over the same elementary things again but instead to progress in our faith so next week what will happen is we're going to start looking at these issues um, women and ministry sexuality things that both put us in um, tension with the wider community and we're also going to look at um, uh, technology and um, maybe artificial intelligence. The Bible's full of remarks about such things. Okay, and that's our test case. How is it that scripture speaks to us? And I'm going to say, Yes, it does, maybe in some surprising ways and not just in a set of sort of uh, principles but rather giving us a vision. And this is how I think about ethics. Basically, ethics is about a vision that God gives us of the future that he desires for the world. So, not just consequences but rather a vision that we are to live into. And as part of that vision, as Christians, as part of the body of Christ... He calls us, he gives us a vocation, shared and also individual roles in that as well, to implement or live into that vision. And we each have a part to play in that together, as I said, and also we have individual roles within that as well. So we have to ask what's my particular part to play in living into the kingdom of God, living out the new creation that has come into this world through Jesus and the Spirit? And then lastly, what kind of character does this community and us as disciples, each of us, have to have to live uh, in such a way to fulfil that vocation to see that vision fulfilled? Vision that God gives us and that God ultimately will bring about. Vocation, our participation in discipleship and obedience to Christ and mission and, and uh, virtue. What is the character that we need to have becoming more and more conformed to Christ? I sure need to. I reckon at least 60% of you need to be more like Christ as well. The other 40% are liars. <laughs> um, so that's what we're going to be looking at. That's the framework that we're going to be using as, as we go through. So those of you who are here. I hope you'll join me with that um, difficult but I hope rewarding journey. And so let's uh, finish with prayer. Dama, have you got? uh Okay. Come on up. I'll just pray quickly and then... Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing and great salvation that you have given us, that you have come... In fulfilment of your promises to your people Israel that you have come and uh, brought your kingdom into this world in a staggering new way and sent your spirit to enable us to live according to that kingdom. As we serve our Lord Jesus Christ in our lives we ask that you will help us to live in a way that reflects the wisdom, the moral vision, um, the life of discipleship that we are called to. Help us to struggle in a faithful way with scripture that you have given us. Help us to obey what we need to obey. Help us to understand what we need to understand. Help us to make wise judgments about things that are before us in the light of those things. We don't wish to point to ourselves but to you. But we know that in living well in the way that you call us to, we're a sign We point to the rightness and goodness of our Heavenly Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Help us in this endeavour, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.